excited about today, uh, we're in this series called All Things New, and we talked about our, our physical health. Last week, we talked about relationships. Today, we're going to talk about finances a little bit, and you might not be what you think it's going to be about today because uh, what we want to share with you is just how to have healthy practices when it comes to your resources. And I brought in a specialist, uh, somebody who's very near and dear to my heart, uh, that I know you're really going to enjoy today. It's the first time you get to meet him. Uh, so let me introduce to you my brother Paul. My brother Paul's been missionary uh, in Australia for uh, many years. Pastor in the United States. He's helping a church plant now up in uh, New York. And uh, just a great guy, great family. I'm so proud of him and all that God's done in his life. Uh, we just love him and I know you're going to love him today. So will you welcome for me this morning uh, with me to our stage, Pastor Paul Trinkle, my brother. Well, good morning, Warehouse Church. I do appreciate the opportunity of visiting with you this morning. I wish my brother was here. I haven't seen him in a long time. But, uh, man, he gave me gifts. He brought me in. He's sending me to my mom and dad's tonight. He's so generous. And I... Uh, I, you know, his generosity is a reflection of your generosity to him and his family. So well done, Warehouse Church, for being a blessing to your pastor, for allowing him the freedom to exercise his spiritual gift of giving. You know, that's a spiritual gift. We think of spiritual gift of evangelism. We think of spiritual gift of discernment. But he's a giver, and I appreciate that testimony of the work that Christ has done in his life to make him so generous and generous to have me come. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of throwing the wuss card at him a little bit. I hope that's not a bad word down here but a little bit of a girly man this morning complaining that it's 10 degrees. Because I was telling uh, Gary yesterday, we had a high for the day in my town of 18 degrees. When I got out of the shower, the windows opened in, the sh in, the sh in my bathroom. We don't have proper ventilation, so when you take a shower, you have to open the window. When the steam goes out, it does that cool science thing. It like freezes and falls to the ground. That's that cold where I live. Last week, at work, in the building with the heat on where I work, it was 40 degrees with the heat on. So, I love your name, Warehouse Church. I am actually a missionary in a warehouse. How many of you ever been to the Sudan? Can I see your hands? Yeah, I didn't think so. How many of you ever been to Pakistan? Can I see your hands? Maybe? No? No? No computer geeks in the room work with anybody from Pakistan? Anybody? You do? Awesome. I work with people from the Sudan. I work with people from, from Pakistan. I work with people from India. I work with people from the great upstate capital district region of New York. When you think of New York, you think of New York City, right? But there is a tiny little weird city called Albany, which has about 300,000 people. And that, I live about an hour northwest of there, right in the foothills of the Adirondacks. And that's where God has called me and my family. We, are, um, we had been working with a church in our village, and uh, we're preparing to break away from that and start a church in Fulton County. There's an area that we have targeted that's between the city of Amsterdam, where we live, which, by the way, if any of your grandmothers ever had a broom in her house when they were younger, they got that broom from Amsterdam, New York, up until about the 60s. We made six million brooms a year in Amsterdam, New York, up until 1960. If you ever had a light bulb in your grandmother's house up until 1960, that light bulb was made in Schenectady, which is about, well, it's about 15, 20 minutes from my house. 
Now it's what's considered economically to be the rust belt of the United States. But here's the funny thing. People still live there. And people still need Christ. And God put us there. I was telling Gary, too, this morning about, or maybe it was Dan I was telling, there's three seasons of, of the year where where we live is magical. If you like to fish, we have over 40 lakes in our county. We only have 50,000 people that live there. We got more fish than people that live in our county. If you like to play in the snow, God love you. I'm too old for that, but there's that. But there, we're surrounded by lakes. We're surrounded by beautiful mountains, and it's a really great place to live. And we're thankful for the work that God's doing in our family. And we're thankful for the work <clears throat> that God's doing in our community. All things new. Cool. I love new stuff. I got into the rental car last night. Oh, by the way, I got into an airplane last night that was brand new. Have you ever flown in a puddle jumper? And you're like, I can't believe I got to take this trip. And it's miserable. And you're like, man, there's like snot stain on the window. And it's like, there's still junk on the floor. And it's like, ooh, it's like a taxi of the sky. Maybe a cattle car of the sky. But last night I got into an Airbus 320. I think she said it was a 320B. And it had... The new car smell. I've never been in an airplane that had the new car smell. And, and the blankets were fresh. And, and, and the screen, there was a screen on the back of the seat, and it was cool. And I could plug my headphones in there, and I could watch TV. And I could listen to music. If I, it was new. It was cool. And then I got to the airport. I got, I, we landed. And, and I, got to, I, I got to my rental car. I opened it up, and it smelled brand new. It was still a Ford, but anyway. Yeah. But it was a new one. It was new. Don't you love new stuff? Don't you love new experiences? Man, every day I wake up with my two little kids that are still in my home. My Gracie, who's 13, and she's very artsy. She draws cartoons, like storyboard stuff. And my James, he's 11. He is this tall to me at 11 years old, and he just started playing basketball, so that's new. And he's learning because he's, he's, he's young and so he's like clumsy. He's learning the extension of his body and how to do stuff. And he's learning. His last game is next week. I'm so pumped he didn't play yesterday or I would have missed his game. But new stuff. We love new. Did you guys read at the beginning of this series a Bible verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Well, there's, if you Google all things new. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But if you Google that, you will find scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture that says something regarding this issue of taking the old and making it new. One of the things that first appealed to me about moving to the upstate New York area was that my father-in-law was a house flipper. He flipped houses. Like you see on TV, flip this house. He took an old Victorian house that was a 4,800 square foot house. He bought it from the bank for about $42,000. And he flipped it. And in a matter of 15 years, he took his time because his family lived in there. But in the matter of 15 years, he sold that house at the top of the bubble for $180,000. And he was like, yes. And he did cool stuff to this house. He did the old Victorian parlor that had pillars inside the house. So I used to see pillars outside the house. He had pillars inside the house into this parlor. And he had the state-of-the-art kitchen with a convection oven, and that was cool. And he had tile floor, and he put in bathrooms, and he put in this, he put in this Victorian bathtub that you're afraid to take a bath in it because it sits on legs. 
well, you may not be afraid, but I'm 300 and something, God bless me. And so I'm wondering if those legs will hold me, but it's new, it's cool, and it's neat, and it's beautiful. And when he sold it, he made a profit, and it was cool. And this thing about renovation and, and turning old into repurposing, they're doing it even with, even with warehouses where we are. People are taking that warehouse theme and implementing that into their home with decorations and with, with they're taking all the industrial stuff out of the factories that are around our community. And they're making lamps out of it, furniture out of it. And it's, and it's cool stuff. I want to read you, I'm going to transition, but keep this thought of old things being made new to Isaiah 43. Now, how many of you guys have your Bibles? If you don't, don't be embarrassed. But if you have them, you can join in, uh, right there in the scriptures. But Nikki, did you get that? Are we able to do that? We might be able to put it on the screen. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 43, and we're going to begin looking at verse number 11. And I'm going to read some scriptures, and I'm going to give you two major league principles regarding all things being made new, and my brother wanted me to talk to you about money. I got to be honest with you. I am the least qualified in all three of the Trinkle brothers to talk about finances other than God has blessed. These are God's principles. We employ God's principles in my home, and God has taken care of us. Have I ever missed a meal ever in my entire life at 49 years old? Never because of money. I've never. Have I ever missed a car payment in 49 years of life? Never. Never because of money. Have I ever missed a mortgage payment or a rent payment? Have I ever missed a tuition payment? Have I ever missed a doctor's bill? Have I ever missed? Never. I promise as a testimony before God and his provision, I have never been without. I'm not driving Rolls Royce. There again, we have salt on our roads. I don't know that I would want to. But God has taken care of Paul and Tammy and Tim and John and Grace and James Trinkle royally. Because of these two major league principles, I believe we can find here in Isaiah chapter 43. Nikki, did that work? Woo! Beginning in verse 11, let's read together. The Bible says... I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. Not that there wasn't any strange gods among them. That's not what he was saying. There was plenty of idols to choose from, but they were not the essence of God, and that's what he's declaring here. All the idols and all the weird stuff that people decide to worship, those things are not real gods. That's what he's saying here. Only he has that authority. I declared and saved and proclaimed. And then he goes on to say, and you are my witnesses, in verse number 12, says, declares the Lord, I am God. And also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. And who can turn it back? Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon... Do you remember when the Israelites were taking captivity into Babylon? You know, the whole Daniel in the lion's den, that's what that was all about. The Israelite nation was in bondage to Babylon. And it was a metaphor of God's people as a whole being trapped in sin. That was a metaphor for that. It was a real-life experience that God used as a metaphor in their lives. Now, continuing in verse number 
14, for your sake I sent to Babylon and bring them down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans who wound up conquering the Babylonians anyway, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. And here's the crux of what we're going to say. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Now, in verse 22 and verse 23, I don't believe we have that back here, but I will read that. It says, yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sin. You have married, wearied me with your iniquities. With that in mind, does that sound like a downer? Or is there some hope in that? I tell my church, I tell my kids, I tell the people that we're discipling together as a family, did you know that the whole Bible was not written to you? Oh, you're looking at me. What? You just said heresy. No. The whole Bible was not written to you. It was, in fact, written for you. And it was written for me. But this was a direct message to the direct people of God. Now, we can learn from the Israelites' experience all things new regarding my finances. How, hmm, what can God teach me today from this passage of Scripture regarding my finances? Well, how about if you take your finances, and again, Ed, as you're listening to this, please forgive me. But what if you were to take finances off the table and just put your life as a whole balcony kind of blanket statement kind of thing? What could God do in your life if you learn these two? Principle number one is the principle of God's authority. God's speaking here really, in my opinion, ad nauseum to the children of Israel. He tells them, he's God. Those things are not. He has done these great things. Those gods, they can't do nothing. They don't even have ears to hear or mouths to speak or they can't not sense. They're just, by his authority, God delivers a people for himself. Ladies and gentlemen, I was 18 years old. I was living in a Christian home, kind of. You guys hear, heard the story many times. My mom was the church queen and she church all the time. Sunday morning, Sunday night. You know, my dad came home from work one night a week, and it was Sunday night that he was home, and my mom was like, no, nope, we got to go to church. And I wanted to stay home and watch the wonderful world of Disney with my dad on Sunday nights, but nope, I had to go to church. We went to youth group. My sister 
when I was 14 years old, I was working for my dad. My sister said, hey, we got a new youth pastor at church. His name's Tim. Shout out to Tim Duggins because he was a very patient, very tolerant Texan. He was. He was from Texas. He was the son of a preacher, and he knew how knuckleheads are. And uh, my children are knuckleheads. But my sister brought me to church. I started going to youth camp at 15. I heard the gospel. started to make a little more sense. I heard grace. I went to a Christian school. If you got in trouble in a Christian school, it's because you weren't saved. That's the truth. Oh, you must not be saved because you did X, Y, Z. Dude, my brother changed some words at the end of a song. You can talk to him about this. And they pulled my mom and dad out of bed at night because the choir trip was coming home from a choir competition. It was like 9 or 10 o'clock at night, some ungodly hour. And we lived 45 minutes from the school. And my brother and his buddy, who is a pastor in upstate New York now, they changed some of the words of this hymn at the end of the, you're supposed to say, oh, man, like the Benedictine monks. And they changed that up a little bit. And it was kind of funny. It might not have been the right thing, but it sure was hilarious. So my... And they sat my brother down in the office, and they told my brother that he wasn't a Christian. I remember when he got saved. I remember when he got baptized. Because I remember it being a big, super-duper curious thing for me. That event was three years later. But God is just so good, and his authority is so incredible that he wants to draw people out for his own. And it's by his authority. God drew me out. 18 years old, I finally understood grace. A dude by the name of Steve Bush was preaching at camp in Summit Lake, Maryland. And our friend Gary Hayden was the camp organizer. And he invited us all to come down to camp. And he asked us to ask this question before the service started each day of camp that week. He asked us to ask God specifically what God wants to show us specifically in our lives that week. And it was, the guy was preaching, and grace made sense for the first time in my life. Jesus died on the cross for my sin, regardless of how good of a kid I was. See, in my house, my brothers were not so good. They were funny, they were harmless, but they were naughty. And they were always in trouble. So I didn't want to be in trouble all the time. I didn't want mom yelling at me, and I didn't want to disappoint my father. So I was good, I was the good kid, I was the good trinkle. But you know what, I was the lost trinkle, wasn't I? I didn't know Jesus. I knew how to stay out of trouble. I knew how to stay off the radar. But man, when Jesus saved me, I want to tell you something right now. Guilt was gone. I wonder if there's a friend in the room today who struggles with guilt. That could be an indicator of your relationship with Christ. You might have guilt that's heaven sent. And because of God's authority and because of your lack of respect for it, you have guilt because the Holy Spirit's trying to convict you of sin. And that, my friend, is a good thing. You might have guilt, on the other hand, because you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And your sin will rob you of your joy. Your sin will rob you of focus. Your sin will take away your edge from work. Your sin will take away your edge from being a dad. Your sin will take away your edge from being a good wife. Your sin will take away your edge from being the kind of daughter that God has called you to be. Because why? Because maybe you don't know Jesus Christ yet. Maybe you're just coming and you're, this whole thing's curious to you and you want to see what's going to happen. But because of God's authority, he draws a people out for himself. You know, his authority is magical. His authority is majestic. His authority 
is something we need to surrender and submit to. By his authority, God disproves false gods in our passage of Scripture. The false god of buying stuff to feel good. I just told you yesterday it was pretty sweet to ride in a new airplane. It was pretty sweet to ride in a new car. I got to tell you, I have a friend who's a commercial pilot. He flies Gulf Streams. And he flies people from the Capital District all over the world. He was suffering for Jesus last year. He had to fly his boss to Fiji for two weeks. He stayed with the aircraft in Fiji for two weeks. Felt bad for him. He was in my prayers. I was holding him up. You know, God intervened. And God, you know. When I think of, when I think of the kind of money that's floating out there in our community, my wife is a bank manager. I don't know if you knew that. And there's a family in town that owns the old buildings of the town. They own Main Street. And this family was trying to get approval to put a casino on Main Street. They were going to eliminate Main Street and it was going to become a new casino. And we have another casino that just came in down in uh, Schenectady, not far from, like I said, where we live. And the kind of money that's there is incredible. We have a horse track. How many dig horses? Horses? Woo horses. We have the oldest horse racing track in the United States in Saratoga. And this last year, it was 150 years old? Or was it last year? Anyway, $290 million were spent last summer in six weeks in gambling in six weeks in Saratoga County, which is 20 minutes from my house. $290 million. It's a lot of cabbage. What could be done to impact the world for Christ with just a portion of that? Now, Ed said I only have 25 minutes, so I need to land this airplane. So here we go. By God's authority, he delivers a people for himself. God's delivered me. My question to you is, has God delivered you? Are you under God's authority? Whether you're a believer or not believer, whether you've accepted Christ or not accepted Christ, if you have not accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you're not under God's authority. If you are a child of God, but yet not living as God is your Father and respect his authority, you're not living under God's authority. And that's not a good place for you. By God's authority, he desires our worship, according to our passage of scripture here in Isaiah chapter 43. He desires a gift. God desires a celebration. God desires a token from us. Now, isn't it weird that the God who made the gold and the frankincense and the sheep and the fat of all the stuff that's talked about right here, the God who made all that and entrusted me and entrusted you with the stewardship of that? Isn't it weird that the God who made that and can make more has asked us to give back that? Is that not just weird to me? Is that weird to you? It seems weird to me. But that's the rule. And sometimes let's not overthink the rule. Sometimes let's just go with the rule. Because it'll be to our benefit if we just obey God. If God can make water... If God can make the, magi- the majesty of the desert and the majesty of the mountains and the majesty of the in-between, what in the world? But yeah, he's God. That's what he requires. Sometimes you just got to say, okay. Sometimes you just got to say, yes, sir. And sometimes you just got to not question and just go with it. But in case you do question, there's more for you. Now, I will illustrate it this way. There was a 
historically, there was a governor of Massachusetts by the name of Christian Better. And he was doing a campaign trail one day, which brought him to a church barbecue. In the morning, though, he was out campaigning, pressing the flesh, trying to get votes, and he missed his morning meal. And he gets to the church barbecue, and there's a lady putting food on the plate. It's not the old school, you know, buffet style. It's someone actually serving. And he puts his plate out, and the woman puts a piece of barbecue chicken on his plate. And he says, ma'am, I haven't eaten all day. Can I have another piece of chicken? And she said, no. He said, ma'am, excuse me. I'm the governor of the state or the commonwealth. I'm the governor of the commonwealth of Massachusetts. May I have another piece? She said, I'm the lunch lady. No. She was exacting her authority. Because she had the authority there. He didn't. Friends, God has the authority in our lives, whether we submit to it or not. When God redeemed you and me, he alone had the authority to do what he would. Why? The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, God has done this for you. God has done that for you. God has redeemed you. God has selected you. God has called you out. Why? In verse number 12 of Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Now, I want to suggest that we can experience a great restoration of God in our lives, and we could experience all things becoming new, especially in the arena of our finances, if we live under God's authority. Now, also, the second thing is if we allow God to do this challenging work of building contentment in our lives, submitting to God's authority and allowing God to challenge us in contentment. There's a new movie out. I don't even know the name of the movie, but it talks about that kidnapping case of the oil baron's grandson. Does that ring a bell? And it's being advertised, and the one actor was going to be in it, but they fired him because of his indiscretions, and then they got Christopher Plummer to become the actor in it, and he actually got an, uh, an Academy Award nomination for his role. Does this ring a bell? Some of you are whispering among each other. You know, it was a true story. And they were true character, historical characters in the previous generation. And one asked in the movie, how much is enough? He said, just one more. But that's not the first time he said that. That oil baron, he had that reputation of desiring financial security so badly, he would do anything to achieve it. Now, when we look at baby boomers, the what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, some of them survived the childhood of the Depression. Some of them experienced as young adults World War II. And maybe I'm speaking to you this morning, senior brother, sister in Christ. And so financial security is something that's a part of your makeup and who you are because of the way you've experienced life. And I, I, I get it. I totally understand But I want to tell you that God has promised to be our provider. And God can provide a whole lot better for you than you can. If you employ the principles of contentment. There's a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It reads the following. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich. How many of you want to be rich? 
How many of you desire to be rich? There's such a drive to wealth that is so dangerous. Would it be nice to have a few more bucks? Yeah. Would it be nice to fly to Fiji with my friend? His name is Paul, too. Sure. Yeah, that would be cool. I'd love to go back to Australia where my kids were born. Cost me $10,000 just to fly home. There were six of us. I had to buy six tickets. My baby, who could sit in my lap, he's 11 now, I had to pay $2,100 just for him. I'm like, okay, someone's getting rich on this, and it ain't me. But, you know, God provided. It took three years to pay off, but God provided. But if we have food and clothes, let's there be with content those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, God is content. God is content. God is the example of contentment. How, but, how, what? How can God be content? Did you look at yourself in the mirror and God redeemed you anyway? Did you sell God short? Maybe. Did you give fully to God what is God's and yet he still loves you? Why? Because God is the master of contentment. God is content with you right now. If you are a child of God, he is content to have you in his family. If you are a curious seeker of who God is, God is content that you are here and that you are under the sound of the gospel and God is content to say to you, I'd like you to be my child too. God is content. He's the master. He's the example of contentment. He said when Jesus died on the cross, it's done. Content. God's the master of contentment. And God teaches us the importance of contentment. God said to the Israelites, man, he had to send them to Babylon to teach them a lesson. He had to send the Chaldeans to the Babylonians to teach them a lesson. Because every time God uses people to judge his people, he judges those people who judged his people. Because God keeps track. Now, God is content to redeem a rebellious people. Back in our passage of scripture, he's talking, I brought you out of Babylon, but you're still knuckleheads. You know what? God redeemed you, but you still fall into sin every once in a while. And you know what? That's okay with God. Because God, not that it's okay that you sin, don't get me wrong. But it's okay to keep you in the family. He's not kicking you out over that. Now, continuing on, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. God is content. This is weird to me, but it's so incredible. For our sake, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were... I can't believe that I can satisfy the contentment factor of God as much of a rascal, prideful, spiteful, conniving, harmful, mean-spirited, self-righteous, arrogant jerk that I was before I got saved. And God said, you know what, I'm going to have you in my family. Friend... The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is content to redeem an unrighteous people. God is content to require an offering. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought, you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who, who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will remember not your sins. Now, if God is content to require an offering, how in the world is there a <clears throat> is there an instruction, is there a direction on how we should bring an offering to God? First and foremost, why don't you just give him your heart when you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, why don't you just give him you? The Bible tells us, know you not? You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your mind and in your bodies, which are God's. Back in the day, we used to laugh at the kid who came to school that had the wallet with the big chain on it. Where's my wallet? Own pocket. He had the wallet, the big motorcycle wallet. It had a great big snap button on it right here. Do you guys have these? Anybody have this? Great big, you, you probably do. <laughs> great big snap button on the wallet. And then a chain, which went from the wallet to his belt. And the only time I have before that I have ever seen these wallets were on the motorcycle riders that belonged to the Hells Angels that came in my dad's grocery store for, for sandwiches when I was a kid. And I'm like, what's, Dad, what's the chain? Is he going to hit us with that? And my dad's like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. That's holding his wallet. I'm like, why is his wallet on a chain? That's weird. You know what, though? If God has your heart, I wonder if there's an imaginary chain that you could put on your wallet that God could have too. There's a cool verse in Malachi chapter 3. It starts out to be a strong rebuke because, again, the children of Israel were knuckleheads. They were children just like you have children. And just like you have children, they needed to get rebuked. And the whole entire book of Malachi is a gigantic rebuke to the children of God because they weren't living right. God tells them that they were living like divorced people. Why? Because they had divorced their relationship with God. God told them that they were living like, like, like sacrilegious people. Why? Because they weren't worshiping God the way they should have. And then God told them that they were thieves. Wow. I don't know. I hate being accused of something that's wrong accusation. If you want to blame me for something, make sure you do your homework and blame me for what's right. Blame me for the things I'm weak in. That's cool. But if you falsely blame me, I get kind of torqued. But God had blamed these guys for everything. Why? Because God saw all their junk. Now, in Malachi chapter 3, it says, Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? We've robbed God. How do we rob you? God says, in your tithes and your contributions. You're accursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that ye may have food in my house, and thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and the vine of your field, and it shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, honor the Lord with the wealth and first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. It says in Luke chapter 6, verse 37 and 38, judge not that you be not judged. That's funny. That's, 
That's the most Bible that all my unsaved friends know. Oh, don't judge me. Don't judge. I'm like, okay, read the rest of the passage of Scripture, you nut. It says this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now, friend, I want to tell you something. My brother wants to talk to me to you about money. And again, I'll say it again. The money I have in my wallet has been put there by God. I didn't do it. I wish. I wish I can say I was smart enough, but the money that's been put into my wife's wallet has been put in there by God. I wish I could talk to, her, to you about her brilliance. I could talk to you about her sweetness. I could talk to you about her servant attitude in helping people. We're just regular people. If I told you how much money I make in a year, you'd laugh at me. But God is blessed because of this principle. Now, I want you to picture for, for a second. With this, I'm going to close. Kitchen trash can, right? It's about this wide, and it's about this long. It's a tall kitchen trash can, okay? Now, my children are unlike your children in that they hate taking out the trash. I know your children love to help mom and dad and get the trash out the door. I know they do because you're wonderful parents, and you're listening to your pastors. He teaches you about parenting. And I know his children have modeled this. They help their mom in getting the trash out the door. My children like to make what's called a snow cone with the trash. They let the trash pile up. Hey, can you take the trash out? No, Dad, it's not full yet. Okay. So my one son will put his size 13 on top of the trash and push it down. And you can hear stuff crunch. More room. Less trash bags, less expenditure. Okay, I'm on board. But you know what we have? We have in the house, we have a demon by the name of Phoebe. She's a puggle. She's the most hateful, stupid dog that God has ever made. She looks at me, gets into the trash, and then looks at me like she's sticking her middle fingers up her paws up at me and says, take that. I swear on a stack of Bibles, I hate my kid's dog. But the dog gets into the trash because the, the trash is a snow cone. It's like, it's pressed down. They wiggle it. They put more in there. And you ever happen to have a tomato can that you open and you throw it to the trash? Doesn't it always reflect off and hit something and get tomato sauce everywhere else? Is that just my burden? Shaken down. Shaken together. Piled up trash now God's talking about something beautiful and blessed here he's talking about blessings now with that picture in mind take your imaginary container that you have your finances in these are offering buckets this is perfect okay shaking together I can fit more in. Shaking together, I can fit more in. Shaking together, ooh, wait a minute. <clears throat> oh, I can fit more in. Especially if it's the paper kind, my friend. And don't wad it up either, because that's harder for the counters. So, and then, now I'm over. I went to a church one time when they were trying to raise money for a missionary. They passed Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets like this in the auditorium. 
And um, that's actually where they got the buckets, Kentucky Fried Chicken. They didn't have enough. So didn't the pastor send them through again? <laughs> and they got enough. Here's the point. If you want a blessing like that, you're told in Proverbs, if you give, you get. You're told in Hebrews, if you give, you get. You're told in Luke, if you give, you get. You're told in Malachi, if you give, you get. You're told out throughout the whole entire scriptures, if you give, you get. So is my motivation to get, so I'll give? Is this like some kind of weird spiritual investment pyramid scheme? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an opportunity to join God and partner with God in this ministry of reconciliation that your pastor talked about from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and that all things are becoming new. You once needed to be reconciled. Now you've been invited into the ministry of reconciliation. And one of those ways is in honoring God with the first fruits of your increase so that your barns might be full. I would love to see your barns full. I would love to see a turnaround because I watch the economy with my wife's work. It's kind of cool. It's kind of neat to see that there is some life happening again in our community. They built a big new shopping center, and that's kind of cool. There's a big church that's just put on a $1.5 million expansion onto their current facility and paying cash for it. In our community, in the Rust Belt, who knew? Someone's sitting on some cash, and they gave. And now God's blessing them with tools to be able to win the community. Now, with this, I'm going to close. <clears throat> if God is your authority and Jesus speaks about money more than he speaks about heaven more than he speaks about hell and if he is your authority do you think that your finances need to come under his authority Paul you're talking about giving I can't afford to I challenge you with two things you can either go cold turkey hard start and start in a tithe and see God bless you through your strife and working out your junk that's what I would suggest. But my brother, who is your pastor, suggests this. Start with 1%. It's the start. And I asked him, I said, okay, then what? He goes, well, after you make it, how many? It takes 21 days to make a habit. He said, just start. So, and, you know, after a period of time, you have that habit of giving the 1%, you give another percent. How do you do that? Look at what you spend your money on. I could say a whole bunch on that. But I have fear that I have expired all my time. And I will leave you with this challenge. My challenge to you as a friend, as someone who admires you, as someone who is thankful for you, as someone who's glad that we're in the same family together, I would say this to you. Go home and ask God this question. I'm not even gonna ask you to ask it today. I want you to go home and ask this question. I want it to be a burning question. God, are you truly my authority? We had a police officer running around out here earlier. I don't know if they were here for worship or they're here for protection. But they're the authority, aren't they? If something goes down, they're on the game, right? They handle it. They're the authority. Do you know God is in this room and he's a grander authority? So go home and ask, is God the authority, kids? Is God my authority? Am I submitting to that? Moms? Is God my authority? Am I submitting to that? Dads, is God my authority? Am I submitting to that? Contentment.
Wait, am I happy with where I'm at? Am I content? Am I like totally relaxed and cool with what God's doing in my life? If he's my authority, I can promise you the answer will strongly be yes. And if I'm not content, maybe I need to review whether or not God's my authority. With that, let's pray.